This podcast is brought to you by the Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation. Are you looking to support your memory and optimize your quality of life? Develop a healthy brain for brighter days at PNI's Lifestyle Program, available virtually and in person. Reserve your spot today. Visit PacificLifestyle.org to learn more. The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. When it comes to cancer, the focus is most often on the patient, but the best treatment happens when the care partners are cared for too. The first step is knowing what it's like to be the partner, son, daughter, or friend of a cancer sufferer. Elaine Lipworth is a writer who lost her husband, Stephen, to a brainstem tumor. Arina Wayne is a gastroenterologist whose father is living with a glioblastoma. Emmeline Moritzen is a physician's assistant at the Pacific Brain Tumor Center who works with patients and their families in the neuro-oncology clinic and infusion center on their cancer journey. We talked about what's hard, what's surprising, and what's rewarding about being a cancer care partner. Listen to this podcast to learn about one of the toughest roles we're called upon to play in this life and what we might learn from it. Let's start with Emmeline. Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining us. My name is Emmeline Moritzen. I'm a physician assistant here at Pacific Neuroscience Institute in Santa Monica. I I work with our patients, their families in our clinics, in our infusion center, and when they're hospitalized here at St. John's to help them on their journey, get them medications, and be a resource for them um, whenever questions come up. Thanks for having us. Oh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Elaine. Hi, I'm Elaine, and I um, cared for my husband, Stephen Beach, who was diagnosed with a brainstem tumor in... 2018, March of 2018. And uh, he died in 2021, in October 2021. And during that time, I cared for him along with my two daughters and um, and caregivers, full-time caregivers. So it, it was pretty full on. I'm a writer. I work throughout the whole journey. And uh, it's been a challenging but also very inspiring and positive journey, despite the heartbreak. Ari. Hi, my name is Ari Noen. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I am a um, physician in Beverly Hills, and my father was diagnosed with glioblastoma in November of 2019. And uh, much like Elaine, with the help of family, my mother and my sister, full-time caregivers, uh, the excellent care uh, of Dr. Kastri and Dr. Sharma. Um, thankfully dad is still with us, but, um, you know, in a, in a, in a very different way and we still are fighting the fight and continuing to care for him. Mm. Start with Elaine. What, I mean, I think we all sort of imagine the worst when we think, you know, could this befall us? Um, what to you was the most shocking and surprising thing about giving care for somebody who has cancer? Well, I have to try and get through this without bursting into tears. Mm. 
because um, just going back, I remember when Stephen was, we got the news the night that we got the news that I got the news and I was at the ER and, um, and they told me that there was a mass on his brain. I just, I fainted actually, that's what happened. And um, from then on, it was just um, a challenge to stay stable and do my best for Stephen along with the shock of what happened because he was in his sixties. He was, uh, I know it's, it's easy to idealize people, but he was um, the rock of our family. He cared for everybody else. That was his job. He was a property manager for a spiritual organization, actually that we belong to, but he was brilliant at practical uh, everything practical he did the DIY, he did the moving, he did the fixing and the um, whatever was needed, not only for our community, for our street, for everybody. So the shock was that suddenly I had to care for him and wanted to care for him. And I wasn't very good at it. Good at it. You know, it kind of felt like it should have been the other way around. Mm. And so um, the, the biggest surprise for me, the biggest shock was... Um, just suddenly that he couldn't do the things he always had done and that um, I, I had to step into that. And that also, I'll tell you another thing <laughs> at this point in the conversation, my love for him, admiration for him and devotion grew. It There was never a moment where I felt uh, this is too much or I wish... Um, I didn't have to do this. It was a privilege, a great privilege throughout the journey. Mm. Had he been healthy and, you know, it sounds like he was a, you know, vigorous, never had, if I had to guess, didn't have any health issues before this yeah. came about? Well, yeah, well exactly. Before this happened, he had always been healthy, fit. He played tennis. He was running around. I mean, he did too much. If any, my only complaint with him uh, you know, was that we'd be having dinner and he'd go and um, rescue somebody like the water heater's broker or, you know, mm. we'd be out for dinner and he'd get a call. Sorry, I had to go. And he he put everybody else before himself. However, right before he was diagnosed for a few months, he'd been complaining that he was shuffling. Um, so Steve didn't have a glioblastoma. He, he had a, I think it was a stage two and a half or three, maybe they, they weren't quite sure, glioma, but he hadn't been quite himself, He be, which I'd ignored. You know, he was, he was more emotional, more affectionate, more, uh, he didn't want to bother me with his problems, but he definitely was more shaky on his feet and he thought he had Parkinson's mm. and his doctor didn't do anything, didn't um, book an appointment with a neurologist, although he'd asked. His, his, and he, I, I honestly, I ignored it because I didn't probably didn't want to know mm. the truth. And I just said, "You're fine." So yeah. he carried on working and being okay right up to the point where he went to the ER. He said, "I don't feel well. I'm going to the ER." Oh my. Okay. Yeah. All right. Same question for you. Most sort of surprising thing about being a caregiver. The most surprising thing about caring for dad, it's, it's, there's multiple levels, uh, answers that I could give to that because 
I've had to play a lot of different roles and, and transition between different roles. So as a physician, the very first um, thing that was surprising and difficult was how little there was actually to to treat and to do in the beginning. Um, I immediately went into you know hero mode, trying to save dad as the physician, not as the son. And eventually having to um, alter that role by finding excellent physicians. So I never thought that when something tragic, traumatic like this would happen, that I'd have to wear so many different hats. Um, mm. Dad is a extremely positive, who's still with us, uh, thank God. And he's an extremely positive um fun, loud, center of the family, uh, kind of glue to his entire extended family, to have that kind of light slowly over time be somewhat dimmed and continue to keep happiness in the family and to try to do some of the things that, you know, he would have done or to try to play some of those roles. Again, that's not something I had anticipated when there's going to be um, trauma, when there's going to be difficulties, uh, having to play the doctor role, the helper to my uncle's role, the, um, you know, making sure my mom is okay throughout all this. Uh, it's an unanticipated thing that all of a sudden you're, you're doing the job of, of many um, and the other thing that I would comment on is with something like glioblastoma, it's, it's really difficult. And dad was the champion of this. He can't speak anymore, but when he could, um, of keeping hope alive, I didn't think that that would be such a challenging thing, but I honestly think that he's made it this far because he's been able to do that. Uh, mm. throughout. And we've been really fortunate to have amazing caregivers, uh, the devotion that Elaine talks about of a wife or a husband. I mean, what I've seen from my mom and sister and extended family has just been incredible. So we've been fortunate, but he's also championed a lot of it. He's he's toughest guy I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Emmeline, does this does this sound familiar? Yeah, I I um I have a couple of thoughts when you both were speaking about how it feels to be on on my side of of the table, so to speak. Um, when I tell people what I do, that I'm a neuro oncology PA, I often get blank stares, or people don't know what to say to me because they don't know how to deal with that. Um, I always find it so surprising because every day I bear witness to such love between family and friends, and such hope and strength. Um, at the end of the day, I go home and I think, wow, like we were able to smile through such pain. We were able to make jokes. Our patients and their families are full of humor and life. And I think to, to not think of that, to think of, you know, um, such negativity when it comes to, to this field truly. And I, I'm so humbled and it's been the great privilege of my life to, to see such love and commitment between friends and family. Um, mm -hmm. and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, I, every day, um, am just in awe of, of our caregivers and our patients. Um, and it, it truly is the great privilege of, of my career to, to be here. So it leaves an impact. I think about our patients after they leave. I, I don't 
I don't leave my office and then I'm done. I, I think about you all the time. Um, <laughs> and that's something that I, that I hope um, and I want our patients to know is that we think about you all the time. Mm. Does that resonate with you, Elaine? Oh my goodness. I'm like, I'm so sad that I didn't meet you. I feel like I want to get to know you now and I'm sure we will because I'd like to do more. That's one of the missions of my life now to help in any way I can, but it's true. But the staff at P&I at St. John's were, I have, I can't even describe it. I've had so many laughs with Dr. Kayseri, Santosh, as when, even when Steve was lying on the bed and he couldn't talk and he was on oxygen and he could just stick his tongue out uh, where we've just had jokes and laughs. He, I have phoned. I don't even know if I should be saying this because poor Dr. Kayseri, he's phoned me at four in the morning. He's just been astonishing. And the, you know, the PAs, Judy and Min, I don't even know if they're still there, but as I say, I wish I'd known you were beyond helpful, warm, wonderful, because I was, um, I, of course, was an advocate for my husband, and I probably terrorised them at times because I was the one that had to do that. My daughters couldn't really do that, so I was phoning all the time. I mean, Stephen was, you know, it did look very positive for a while, and I we tried to stay positive, but then there'd be something else happen, and then towards, in the last year and a half, it was the, the uh, problems accelerated, and the feeding tube's broken, and that he's throwing up or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I won't go into the kind of horrific details, but they were calm. They were helpful. They were wonderful. Um, They phone me back all the time. I've had people coming to the house, you know, like old fashioned house calls. Dr. Kayseri, by the way, came to our memorial, our celebration of life. Stephen, it's just, it's, Beyond belief, I am forever grateful. And it gave me hope and kept us positive. And uh, Stephen, like Ari, like your dad, is was hopeful. He was positive. He never, ever complained. And the, but really just to go back to your question, the whole staff at p were, and St. John's were extraordinary. And, and I just want to mention not only people like you, the highly qualified people like you, but is it John at the Cancer Centre desk uh, who he was, he did, where's Steve? I've been in to see him since then. He was just amazing. I mean, who's this chief security guy who I've written about for, for Thrive and talked about mm. was amazing. The staff that it's really amazing. And as I said, I grew up Jewish and I'm now in a spiritual organization called MSIA where Steve worked, but going in there and feeling the love that felt, it felt hopeful it felt spiritual. And I always, I lived in that hospital for um, several sessions of weeks at a time because I wouldn't leave, st- you know, my older daughter and I, well, all three, my two daughters really, we refused to leave him at any time. And especially when he couldn't speak. So we were always there with him and the atmosphere there was uplifting. I know, I know it, there is a spiritual focus. It's not the religion I grew up with, but just extraordinary so that I felt actually joyful when I was there, even when Stephen was going through such difficult, painful, you know, terrible in Ah. some ways thing. I don't even want to call it terrible, challenging um, moments, weeks, months. Uh, Amazing. 
Ari, does that is that your experience? It's it's exactly my experience, and I would definitely mirror everything Elaine is saying. I think it has uh, the 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 willingness of the physicians to just go above and beyond, and the PAs and all of the ancillary staff there have made a really difficult process definitely a lot easier. There's no doubt in my mind that if I need something, um, it will be taken care of on so many levels. Um, so that part uh, has actually been the easiest part of all of this is fine is once we got plugged in there and we started out elsewhere and we came to uh, PNI eventually, that part honestly couldn't be smoother. And I'll also comment that it's changed the way I practice. Um, and I always, you know, knew and considered myself to be a, a compassionate doctor, but this is a whole other level uh, that I've learned through this process from them that, that I hope to be able to, that I hope I'm implementing in my own practice. Um, Do we tell us about your, just you, tell us what kind of doctor you are. Yeah, I'm a, a gastroenterologist, okay. uh, stomach digestive system doctor. Uh, do a lot of, you know, cancer prevention, cancer screening, ironically, mm. for prevention of GI cancers and treating GI symptoms and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, so my patient population is not a terminally ill population. They're generally healthier and in prevention. But what it's done is up the level of compassion in my own practice and in my life in general, I would say. Um, that, you know, each moment, each interaction is precious and is the ability to make a difference. And to be honest, a lot of my patients come into the office now and they ask, how's dad? And they, they, they coach me through it. And it's always, when you think about it, it's the other way around. The doctor is supposed to take care of the patient, but honestly, we'll sit there and talk about me for five or 10 minutes. And it's astonishing. It's uh, the show of compassion. is just, it's, it's breathtaking. God. Um, so there's one of the questions here that we have on our list is what do you wish the medical system understood? And what I'm taking away from what you've said is there's a lot that it does understand. Um, is there anything that you think having gone through this, that, that the system could do better? Elaine? Uh, yes. Well, it's, it's a complicated question because I grew up with the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain, you know, which is socialized medicine and um, where you would get support with a care package at home. And I think there are two main things that um, strike me. And the first is that, so this is no fault of PMI, PNI or St. John's, that the complications and the difficulties for a, a caregiver are immense when you're going through brain cancer. And um, I didn't really get enough support in sorting out a home care package and any... Does that, what does that mean? What does that mean in the um, in the British... Um, well, you get help with... Home, you get home care. They, yeah, they wouldn't let you go home without um, without support without care and then you get regular care but it's here we do get home health but that is so little and um it's it you know it's not the kind of full-on care that you need so i'm not i can't speak it, it really in a knowledgeable way about britain because i've lived here for over 30 years mm. the, but you know that that's generally yeah, american citizen and, yeah. but um but um 
what we didn't get was support. Well, we did individually from Dr. Kayseri, Dr. Carrillo, Dr. Wagley, from, you know, all, you know, people like you, I'm like, that was amazing. But there was no um, concerted effort to get us care that would be paid for. And yet it seems crazy to me because we would not let Stephen go into assisted living, you know, to, into um, a care home, a nursing home. We wanted him at home, which was much more economical, much cheaper than having him go into a nursing home. And yet there was no financial assistance for us at all because, you know, I have a mortgage, I have a house, I have a job. Um, and so I was having to sort all that out on my own and pay for the caregivers, um, which was very expensive. And we didn't have long-term disability or anything. Of course, you never think this is going to happen to you. That's one thing I might recommend people to do if they can afford it mm. in hindsight. Um, and so it's just been a massive expense. And, you know, I'm happy to have done it and that I could do it and get through that with support from um, people are up from friends and my community and a GoFundMe and my own career. Um but I, ju I, I just think that's one big thing that's of the financial aspect and the fact that I don't understand. So for instance, I'm um, just give one example. Steve had to have several courses of IV antibiotics for extremely serious infections. Um, we had to um sort that out ourselves and pay a lot for them. And yet, had he been in hospital, so had we admitted him yet again to the ER, I don't know how many times we we had to do that because I'm just going to say maybe, well, several times during during the time that Steve was ill because of emergencies. But it, we would have got that free had he been at St. John's. You know, that wouldn't have been a cost to us. But we ended up paying thousands in courses of antibiotics. And just really simple things like um, incontinence pads. Um, we had to pay for hundreds of dollars. Mm. And I mean, it, you know, it became a joke. Uh, honestly, it, you know, we we that was that was another thing we had to see the humor all the time, actually, sure. in institutions, Steve included. But I think the complications uh, and the you know, this happens to you. And I, I'm sure Ari knew a lot more than I did. I knew actually my dad was a doctor who died soon after Stephen in England and my brother's doctor, but I knew nothing about any of this, even though I'd done a lot of health reporting as a journalist over the years, nothing can prepare you for this. Mm. And I didn't have, um, you know, there are nurse navigators. We also moved to St. John's from somewhere else very soon after um, after Stephen's first surgery, in fact, a month after we he was diagnosed, we moved to PNI in St John's. But um, I, it it would be great to have one person, you know, really as a as a um, you know point person guiding you through the process. And I know that would be very expensive. It'd be really hard to do. But I was just lost. And then all the paperwork and, you know, and the my chart stuff and the bills and the and and then fighting the bills. You know, I, I one of the one of the things that I shouldn't have had to deal with, I feel like, was that Stephen for the past year and a half had to get private, we had to get private ambulances because we couldn't get him in the car anymore. And long after he died, I was still getting bills from private from the company um thousands of dollars from for the 6 minute ride from 
our house in Santa Monica to St. John's. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to complain too much about that, but that shouldn't happen. But I didn't really have enough assistance and support because who has time to help? Yeah. And yet those things, it's those little stresses that add up. Um, and, for, for, and yeah. just, you know, every time you open a bill or, you know, go online and see another bill, it's like, you know, my heart would sink. And that's medicine in America. I mean, so, Ari, does that sound familiar? It does. It does sound familiar. Um, it w- It's definitely difficult. I, I'd say the hardest thing was to try to get good, reliable, full-time, you know, home care so as to ease um, a lot of the burden of a lot of the family members. Um, and, and also for dad's, you know, sense of dignity, there comes a time where your faculties are really diminished and your family members are having to do things for you that you can't, you could never have imagined that they'd have to do for you. And, and as Elaine said, they do it willingly, they do it with love, but on both sides, it's important to have people there to help get you through that because it, 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 it weighs on you uh, on both sides for the patient and for the, for the caregiver. It's been, it was difficult to find somebody. We were extremely blessed to have found somebody that was, uh, Honestly, almost like dad's voice when he couldn't speak, an extremely positive, happy caregiver. His name is uh, Edgar, and he's part of the family now. I can't even imagine not having him around. He, he plays guitar for us. He sings. We do karaoke. We, uh, he knows my kids. He, uh, he's, part of, he's part of the family. He, he tries to go home, and we, we make sure that he goes home with a full plate. And even though he never... Never will go with the full plate. Mom's throwing a full plate at him um, on the way out. And he's just part of us. But all that to say that it's just difficult to find good care. We really went through so many people and it was extremely stressful. So that was difficult. And the other thing that was extremely difficult is that with something like glioblastoma, Elaine mentioned that, you know, maybe I knew kind of what I was getting into. And that was a blessing and a curse. I kind of knew in the ER when we saw that, MRI or C, it was a CT scan. I I knew I, I knew what we we're getting into right there and then. There was no hiding and there was no like um, you know tiptoeing around that. <sighs> and then from there, and I experienced this as well as a physician, is the blend of Western medicine, what's available, and then the holistic. It is endless how many treatments are out there, and it is so difficult to have a filter of what to do. And when you get diagnosed, you're in the hospital, there's a brain tumor, you feel a sense of urgency to have this taken out. Uh, I think dad had surgery five days after. In hindsight, I think that we shouldn't have had such urgency. Um, I think maybe we had more time than we thought to do some research and homework. And and thankfully, luckily, uh, unfortunately, not everybody has this, but you know, we we had the facilities and the means maybe to go anywhere in the country or the world to try to get, you know, that done in a slower manner. But then I was left and I, I to, to research everything, holistic, non-holistic. I mean, we had that, we have, we still do on CBD therapy. So I have a CBD specialist. We tried all kinds of, you know, dietitians and nutritionists and um, researching different things in different company in co- countries Somebody even like, I'll tell you the wildest, most extreme versions of it is 
Somebody was cured of glioblastoma by finding snails in the garden and blending them up and drinking. I mean, you name it, I've heard of what it is. And then you're left as the caretaker and then put on top of it, the, the son who's a doctor caretaker to filter all this out. Yeah. And some of the stuff, you actually do it, it'll kill you. Um, and it's just extremely difficult. And there's no data. There's no research. There's on a lot of this stuff. It's very, somebody tried it and it worked type of thing. And you feel desperate. So, so you, you know, you consider doing anything. Snails in the garden. Sure. Um, Did you try the snails in the garden? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I'm a gastroenterologist. You get a disease from that. No way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can I just add there, Ari? Yeah. I mean, we went through all that as well and spent... Yeah a lot of money we had because there was a guy called Bobby who was another patient of Dr. Casery and Dr. Casery wasn't against I you know isn't against um holistic medicine and he said you know try everything so we had um this this guy Bobby who had a glioblastoma he he li- did live for four years actually and he was so helpful to us um as a resource but I went we kind of had zooms with his um his homeopathic doctor in Hawaii, who'd been, he'd been to, he was a very wealthy guy. And I was getting supplements, all kinds of supplements like, uh, mushroom, you know, different mushroom supplements and, um, lion's mane and mm. all sorts of things that were supposed to help. And then we read about jellyfish. There was some, there was some kind of, uh, and you're desperate and, you know, clutch at straws, but I have to say the, the, so all that is very hard to navigate because how do you know, and, uh-huh. and I know you you did know a lot more than me, and but I, and I also have friends who've been um, brain cancer researchers. I've got a friend at U, U Michigan, and I'd forgotten that's what she did. And so she was talking to Dr. Casery for me and helping me. And it's just I don't know what the answer would be to to navigate all that, whether you have funds or or not. But I did find that very complex, difficult, confusing. But I. What really helped for me was um, the spiritual outlook that just like um, prayer, having having some kind of faith that we would get through this, that this this somehow was for Steve's and our highest good and that he would be going on somewhere better and that um that we would all find peace and there was a meaning in it so maybe you know cynics would say of course you'd say that um but i i have found that very very helpful having a spiritual uh, spiritual perspective and now a message from our sponsor the think neuro podcast is brought to you by pacific neuroscience institute foundation a nonprofit 501c3 organization If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org slash foundation. Emmeline, what what do you have to say about the home care conundrum? And then also any advice on sorting through these treatment options, you know, as alternative as they may be? Yeah, I hear it. I hear that frustration. And I think we all echo with it. I think we all butt heads at the medical system at different parts, but I think consistently what we feel is we always wish that we could do more. We wish we had more time in clinic with patients. We wish we could um, do more home interventions because I do think it's important if somebody wants to be at home more to allow them to do that in a safe way and support the patient and their family's goals in doing that. So I, I hear that frustration. I, I'm so sorry to hear that it 
was such a challenge. Um, I know that you're not the only one that's experienced that. Um, as far as, as navigating it, I think, you know, not everybody has time, means, energy to do this, support to do this. So it does end up oftentimes going to family and friends who can, who can um, search online and, and do everything you did, Elaine, and, and are what you're describing. Um, hopefully, my hope is that 5, 10, 20 years from now, this will be a much smoother process and that we'll have learned from, from this, we'll advocated for our patients, um, everybody, family, caregivers, um, healthcare providers to improve coverage for these services. Um, as far as the supplements go and hmm. sales, yeah, I, I think I think one of the ways that we, I think we're all looking to have control over what feels like a really out of control situation. And one of the ways you can do that is to research. And you're right, Ari, if you do that, you can spend all day, every day, not sleep for years to, to read all this out there. Um, but I, I try to meet patients, families where they're at when they want to try something. I think it's a way that you can exert control over a diagnosis, over a symptom. Um, so as long as there's no, you know, proven harm, I, I, I think that it's really important to be flexible and to allow the blending of different cultural beliefs, um, combination of different medicines, whether it be Western and more holistic, like you said, Ari, I think it's really important to allow people to feel control over these things and to give options um, and not just say, I want you to do this. So you're going to do that. I think that's not the way good medicine works anymore. It's to allow options, talk through those options and what makes the most sense for everybody in their unique situation. Because it's not mm. a one size fits all for everybody. Absolutely mm. not. Well, and PNI is, you know, I've talked to a number of doctors there now, um, you know, many of them, and PNI is not, um, doesn't dismiss um, these other treatments or these other ideas. I mean, they're very open to them about, you know, in, you know, spirituality, meditation, um, you know, all across the, the gamut, right? I mean, they ask for evidence, but uh, I've noticed that trend there. Mm. Um, I think the last thing we should talk about uh, and might is, how did you take care of yourself as a caregiver? And I'm trying to imagine, I suspect you could feel guilty at times if you were taking care of yourself and, and not the patient. And maybe I'm off base there, but if you could talk a little bit about how you took care of yourself, I think that would be helpful. Elaine, do you want to, do you want to lead off there? Yes. Um, I, ju I just, first of all, would like to say, one of the ways I took care of myself was by finding a wonderful caregiver, Anna, who we'd known and who'd actually worked for Stephen um, before he got sick as, as a cleaner. And it turned out that Anna um, Gonzalez was the most extraordinary caregiver. So she was with us throughout the whole time. And Ari just as you were saying um, about your caregiver, he she brought light, humor, joy, patience, and just love into our house. So she was there so much of the time. And that really helped me take care of myself because I trusted her. So if I wanted to go for a walk for an hour, you know, I knew that Anna was there. She was organized. She was efficient. Um, she knew what music, she knew that Steve liked, you know, either Dylan or Muddy Waters or Rachmaninoff. She could um, 
play him his the band you know she knew to go on youtube and and do all that for him and that actually really helped me as a caregiver and then i just want to mention our other you know caregiver a friend joanna so when anna wasn't there joanna who's a nurse would fill in but she didn't charge us nurses rate she was she you know she was just really helping out as service and so she would come in the evenings and I'm mentioning that as part of my care because we'd have little dinners together I'd put out olives and you know we'd we'd just chat and it was really great for me to have somebody in the evening who um you know I I could talk to and and it gave my daughters it gave Chase uh, who's now 28 a chance to you know take some time off as well so the ways I took care of myself First of all, I have the most amazing job. With Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington founded the company, and it's um, it's a behavior change platform with a mission to end the burnout epidemic with, by focusing on well-being. And so it was just perfect for me. I'm the senior writer at the company. And it felt like to many people, well, what you're working full-time as well as caring for Steve and being up through the night and it was great because I could do my job at home. I love my job. It's purposeful, meaningful. Um, I interview people. Um, as Ari was saying, um, I have much more compassion now than I ever did before. And that's just, it's just made me feel like a better writer and a better journalist. And that has been part of my, a big part of my self-care. Plus, you know, I was making money so I could pay for our amazing Mm. caregivers and give Steve the best care possible and continue our lives. Um, So that was one important part, my work. Second, it was just connecting with Steve in any way I could because he did lose a lot of his faculties, but mentally he was always fine. So we'd listen to music together. He ended up not being able to eat. So I just have dinner and sit with him and, um, and we'd watch we, you know, there was comedy. So we'd watch Ted Lasso or SNL, Saturday Night Live. And we have pe- we'd hear, have people around. It was like connection was really important. And I barely went out during those three and a half years, barely left our house in Santa Monica. But, um, you know, there had been trips to England before and my, I was working all over the world. But everything was contained in our house, our bedroom, our backyard. And so self-care for me was just being with Steve when he, well, he could always go out. My daughter, Chase, could wheel him outside and so he could enjoy the sunshine and the flowers. Um, that was really important. And self-care was moving, making sure I was eating well, um, just exercising, a lot of walking. I had a bicycle that Steve had put in on a kind of platform in our bedroom for me because mm-hmm. I had knee problems years ago. So I just like beyond the bicycle we'd put music on listen to Dylan or whatever you know Steve wanted Van Morrison and um that was part of my self-care and I had a big focus on gratitude um just what am I grateful for I'm grateful that Steve's alive I'm grateful for our life together I'm grateful for our amazing daughters Chase and Ava Rose I wrote a journal and a lot of that was about gratitude but just what I was going through so I think that was very therapeutic and um, gratitude for friends. And then I think underlying everything for me is self-care is having a spiritual practice. So I meditate every day. I continued to do that even if it was hard. And, you know, I was like sobbing and I just carried on with the meditation, going to 
online seminars and just at the center of all, all my self-care really is this sense that there is more to life than this and there is a deeper purpose and that we're in this together and you know again i think it all came down to gratitude gratitude to dr casery dr creo um dr sharma dr wagley all the all the staff at st john's and to my friends and family and you know gratitude that i could afford to keep him at home and for our beautiful house and you know for all the love and gratitude to myself that i um c- you know managed had the power within me to um look on the bright side have a sense of humor be positive mm. and have fun with it we we always had a laugh we had our friend nancy yeah one of one of the things that really helped me actually self care was nancy who'd been steve's best friend at work every single saturday night every single saturday night except when we were in hospital and during covid she couldn't come and visit she came round for dinner and i cooked so i still did that and i still do that right now she still comes around every saturday night so you know just having a strong community um the other thing i just want to mention giving back so even during that you know i just didn't have much time to give back to anybody else but did my best like what can i do um for a neighbor because i wanted to continue steve's legacy of giving back so i think all those elements are really important <laughs> and that's what i'd recommend to you know to keep a kind of bright outlook and yeah and yeah. take care of ourselves yeah ari truth is i'm still trying to figure that out um mm. it's been a work in progress you know early on it's changed shapes a lot how this feels early on there of course there was a ton of anxiety um that came on that i've never had in my life before we've never experienced kind of difficult things and over the course of a couple of years we had a, a few family members uh two aunts pass away from cancer and then dad was diagnosed so it really made me taste my own mortality uh the anxiety mm-hmm. of kind of what's to come what what's difficult about it and then I'm going to lead into how I managed to promote self-care through all these challenges was what was difficult about it is you know the world still goes on is my children still need me my wife still needs me my practice needs me and god bless them all because they're a huge part of the self care and maintaining me and not letting the bottom fall out here um also feeling like i need to be there for my mom my sister for my dad making sure he's not in pain that he's getting the best possible care so a lot to balance a lot to manage uh when something like this happens but eventually I I came to a place, you know, of realizing that a year passed and then a little more passed and I said, "Well, gosh, I wish I wish I didn't waste the last year worrying about it because I would have, you know, enjoyed the time more." And I read something about anticipatory grieving and that mm. really stood out to me that, you know, and and when dad was younger, he told me stories about his dad about this and and it, there came a time where his mom had to tell the family about my grandfather his dad that you know you'll mourn him when he dies when he had uh rheumatoid heart disease before there was penicillin because he was on his deathbed and my grandma stood there and said you'll you'll grieve him when he dies and the family just kind of like picked themselves up and and stood up and that that hit me is you know when the time comes 
as Elaine knows all too well, you'll do it. But I, I realized that you have to be in the moment. You have to keep it light. You have to keep it. When when Elaine said it, I, I was thinking to myself, I don't know if the audience will understand what you meant when you said have fun with it. Like, how can you have fun with that? But you can. And there's ways. And there's ways that we wind up laughing in a difficult situation. And mm. I remember dad going into his brain surgery. But anyways, he had everybody um, dancing. The anesthesiologist, <laughs> the nurses, he was dancing on his way to the OR. Oh, my gosh. There's ways to stay happy when you have no business being happy. And there's ways to do it. Um, Can I just, um, if this time, I mean, I know exactly um, what Ari's, of course, going through. And I'm, you know, a different, maybe, like, easier stage. But I just know exactly what he's going through, but finding the joy in the most difficult situations is a key. I'm let Ari go and I just know exactly. Yeah, wait, sorry. Um, no, no, you're totally good here. Absolutely. So the other part of it, like the self-care, like recognizing that I couldn't let everybody kind of myself included go into the tailspin was um, exercise was really my meditation. Like really every morning waking up at 6 a.m. and making sure before any phone calls, emails, any making sure, <clears throat> you know, dad's taken care of that. I was taking care of myself and um, God bless my wife for kind of always making me realize that things can be worse. I've seen it through this process that even though this was bad, it's the best of the worst and it actually could be worse. I've seen, I've had friends who, you know, have gone through some very traumatic things in the interim since dad's been diagnosed. And, you know, you never know. You just have to um, stay positive. I think making sure that you're not, there were periods of time where I wasn't sleeping very well mm. and focusing on that a little bit more um, helped a lot. Writing things down instead of just kind of always ruminating about them uh, helped a mm. lot. And then just being around my kids and family and just feeling the love from everybody. And honestly, wait, how old, how old are your kids? Uh, 12 and 11. Okay. And yeah. does your, and does your father live close by? He lives very close by. Okay. And in that's fact, what I thought. I just yeah. wanted to clarify. Yeah. He lives close by. And when he fell and broke his hip, I had the privilege of having him in our home for six months. Him and mom lived with us, which was amazing. And, uh, you know, we've just managed to, take care of each other that that's been the self care it has what was his job he's had a lot of jobs but dad um started out in iran before we moved here we moved here when i was four he was <sighs> in his early 30s he did a lot of import export there and then he came here and he so sold a sewing thread to the garment district in downtown la yeah yeah that, did real estate a lot of charity work um he was a yeah he could do it all a lot of different things. He, he absolutely could. Yeah. 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 Sorry I interrupted you. I just wanted to get that there. Um, wow. So let's let Emmeline just weigh in here. And then I want to do one last thing. And I was going to ask if you each of, if, if you all wanted to ask each other something, because I, you probably know the questions better than I do. So why don't we see if Emmeline wants to say anything about what she just heard. And then let's, 
think of something. If there's something that you'd like to ask, I think we should do that. It's a great question. Um, <laughs> what, what to ask each other. Um, in regards to what we were just talking about, um, how to practice gratitude in the mixed in the midst of, of um, terminal illness. And I, I think it's important to recognize that there's still life to live. There's still memories to be made and joy to be had. And I think, and, but I think believing that is true is the first part, because I think when you're presented with such horrific news, um, all the air gets sucked out of the room and you think I will never be that happy again. I will never be that carefree again, because now this new person, this new role I have in my family, this is it. Um, I will say that plot twist, I'm also a caregiver. My father was diagnosed with cancer about a year and a half ago. Um, and you somehow you just do, you, you wonder how the next day you get up, people are going to work and you're thinking how, <laughs> because mm -hmm. my life has completely changed. I was one person yesterday and today I'm this whole new person. Um, and, and it takes a while. Um, I think being patient with yourself to allow yourself to be able to laugh, to feel joy. I think you feel guilty at first. I felt guilty laughing or mm. trying to have fun um, because I felt like, oh, I should, I should maybe still be feeling some sadness. Um, but it comes back and it came back in a beautiful but different way for me. Um, one way that I, I experience joy and practice gratitude and practice self-care is to be out in nature. I think... Um, to see, I, I just went to a couple of gardens a couple of weekends ago and the tulips are blooming, the flowers are blooming. And I think it just, it made me feel so grateful to, to have at least what I have right now, um, to have people that I love, people that love me. And I, I thought about what really matters today? What matters today? What do I have today? And I had enough. I had more than enough to, to make me feel grateful and whole and joyful. Oh um, well, you've also, you've all seen this from different, from different angles, right? I mean, Right. Ari's a caregiver who's, you know, now is in a, another role. You're in the same situation. Right. And Elaine writes about this stuff and now is kind of living. Right. Yes. Um, I was just because I, I write about this stuff. So my articles are on Thrive. Many articles that I've written about Steve, about caregiving as I've because it was been ther therapeutic for me and also hopefully or maybe inspiring or informative for other people. But there's one thing I just wanted to add about my experience that, um, so on the gratitude, two things, the gratitude, it's like, and Ari, you talked about the staying presence and appreciating the present moment that all through this, you know, I had my wonderful daughters, Chase and Ava Rose, who were um, there, they were there with us for me and for Stephen and just, really um a great gift and that gave me a lot of joy and gave Stephen a lot of joy the other thing I just wanted to say was I have learned with great difficulty not to judge the experience of the person who is dying and to see Stephen through a different lens because on the face of it towards the end he spent most of his time lying on a hospital bed with wounds, with a tube. He couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, and he couldn't talk. And yet, mentally, he was fine. And I would say to him, do you still want to live? Because many people were suggesting hospice, and which I didn't want selfishly, but I knew that I needed to 
gives Stephen that option. And I'd say, stick out your tongue if you want to live. And he'd stick out his tongue. And I'd say, stick out your tongue if you want to hospice and you want to end it all, really. You know, if you want to just, which which was an option for maybe the last year. And he didn't stick out his tongue. And I used to check it. And then I'd say, okay, Dr. Casery, you check. <laughs> and and Santosh would check. And Steve wanted to live even when, you know, we were wheeling him in. And this is a strong, dynamic guy, man of action, who was reduced, you might say, to, um, you know, this kind of figure who was lying there and couldn't do anything. And so what I learned was not to judge his experience because I know, I can't prove it, but I know that Stephen was finding joy, you know, with his family. So with me being there, with Chase and Ava around him, appreciating his family, hearing, you know, that he couldn't go to Chase's um college graduation at Kenyon, but he knew she got into do a PhD. He knew that Chase became a TV reporter and he saw her on TV. She's a TV news reporter for Spectrum here in LA. And he got a lot of joy out of just being with us, just lying there. And so I think it's maybe helpful for people to know that um, our experience of life and what we think um, are the prerequisites for a good life can change and who knows how how much more joy he got out of life in those last mm. months and years and what i really appreciate was that the team at pni led by santosh knew and appreciated that and he agreed with me he said nope he wants to live it's and he did and you know amazingly for steve who couldn't play tennis couldn't play the guitar couldn't go and do things for other people and fix everything around the house. And yet I know that there was a deep joy and that he he could be read to and he could find things funny and he could enjoy his family. You know, that reminds me when Steve Jobs was on his deathbed um, with pancreatic cancer, he, at the end, you know, he couldn't do any of these things. And he just, I think what was the, the quote is something like, he just was sitting there and just be like, wow. Like the just, he really appreciated just life even in that state you know it was like a revelation for him right so let's do this um elaine do you have a question for either of these folks kind of a quick uh, a quick lightning uh, round you know, here. A quick question. um well yeah ari i yeah what just what do you need most now i feel like is there anything i can offer to help at this state you know i'm on the next stage what you know what what do you need most is what comes to it's it's honestly sentiments and questions like that that really uh keep everybody going so thank you for for asking that you know we're we're in that place you you couldn't have said it better that joy is the barometer i think that you know dad still has joy i was on vacation with the kids the other week and i was facetiming him and mm. having a good time with the kids and i hadn't heard him talk in a while but i don't know how he got the words out but he said it in farsi that you know he's happy to hear that it was incredible. And the, 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 it, it changes things that you don't consider to be imaginable or a state which you could accept. Once you're in that state, it becomes the new norm and the joy and the love is still at the base of it all. So, um, Elaine, to answer your question, you know, we're good. I think we're good, but we just, uh, have to keep staying positive and present and, you know, 
doing everything we can for each other. But I so appreciate you asking. Mm. You're very inspiring. By the way. Yeah. Well, all of you are. I feel the same about all of you, honestly. Ari, what about you? What what's what would you ask? <clears throat> you know what I want to ask. I'm not going to ask, but I'll tell you what that question is. But I don't want Elaine to answer it because it's going to be different. Is is that whole anxiety of just what happens next? Like, how do we get through the next stage? And if there's anything I've learned through these stages, it's you'll figure it out and you'll be together, and and you'll find out. But I, I would want to ask of MLN, you know, are there, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've looked, maybe a couple of years. Do you foresee in the field big breakthroughs, big major th- game changers that could potentially come through for patients and, and kind of change the face of this for everybody in the future? That's our hope. I look at the hardworking people in our research lab, all of us contributing to clinical research, and and that is the goal. Now, I, I do not go into too much science. Obviously, brain tumors have a unique challenge in that your body, your blood vessels in your brain are so tight, they don't a, a lot let a lot of drugs through. So it's really hard to make a medication that can treat a brain tumor. And and B, it's part of the core of who you are. Um, your brain is is composes your, your personality, how you function. And I I mean, I don't want to get into any other details, but it, it's tough. It's really tough to it's find. It's a loaded question. But, it but is. I, think I think it's one that if, if I think about it as a physician, I don't know anything about. The last time I heard about glioblastoma, honestly, it was in medical school 20 years ago until dad was diagnosed. So I, I know nothing about it. But I, I as I've looked into this, I, I think it will come. And I think that um, it, it's not far off and that's not based on science or research or data, but I really truly think that um, in medicine in general, there seemed to be a better understanding of uh, personalized individual things that I think there'll be a breakthrough at some point. And I think it's just important whether we have the science or data for people to recognize that as a possibility. Mm. Yeah, I think we're definitely moving it away from the one size fits all model to more targeted therapies. And I think that's going to be the direction of the future and how we can even use existing therapies um, for different other different cancers. Um, I think that'll be part of it, too. But you're right. Um, it's it's always our hope that <laughs> give us give us another month, give us another year. And mm-hmm. I, I hope that we'll be looking at a different outcome for so many people. Dr. Dr. Kayseri assured me that he is going to cure brain cancer. So that's a sweeping statement from a non-medic as in me, but Dr. Kayseri says he will do it. I've interviewed him and, you know, he is a very capable person. I'm, I'm, I would be glad to have him. uh, I'm glad to have him on the job. I mean, I'm counting on him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Emmeline, what did I miss? You know this stuff cold. What what did we not get here? Oh, I think we had, I mean, <laughs> I think we um touched on so much. Um, I've never met both of you um before. So I'm learning your stories from you for the first time. And I, I appreciate your willingness to share and, and be so honest about, about your experiences. Um for me, a question that I have for both of you, um, it's something I typically ask. I don't always ask this question, but I, I'm wondering what. What parts of your loved ones do you see in yourself? What are what are parts of them that that you that you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, that's that's my my spouse or that's my dad? I'm curious what what that is 
for you both. I'll take that one. Um, first, if you don't mind, I, I certainly look like him. I wish I had a picture to show you, but <laughs> there's a striking resemblance between us. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's his positivity, his uh, willingness to kind of stand in the middle and hold other people up. Um, just, you know, I like to think that I learned to be a good dad from him. Yeah, those would be the salient things. That's good stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Elaine? Um, so the question is, how am I like him? So I'm going to say, so first of all, am I pointing this at the camera? This is Stephen Me a few years ago. I've got pictures of him all over. Mm. Was he British or American? American, Philadelphia. Yeah. And I'm just going to take this one off the wall because he's... <laughs> This is this is Steve and Chase, my oldest, our oldest when he's a baby. Like he was just gorgeous, you know. He's like gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Mm. Um, they look so similar. You can tell. You can oh, tell. Sure they do. Um, so uh, I think I had honestly not very much in common with Steve, uh, other than we, you know, we we both in the same kind of spiritual on the same spiritual journey, and um, we both loved the same music and had a similar sense of humor. But I, what I'm going to say is what I have, what, uh, what I have learned from Stephen since he got ill and what I am doing to embody his presence and legacy since he died are just huge. So he's, he's laughing up there or wherever, because I know he's, he's with, he's with us here. I've learned to, he, I was the cook, always the cook, but he did the the how the um, everything at home. I've learned to do the laundry properly. I've learned to do the fine details when I'm cleaning. Um, I've learned to be more organized. But most of all, the real legacy of Stephen Beach is that he just was a giver. He had the most kindness and compassion and um, quiet sense of service I've ever met in my life. And everybody says this about him. It's who he was intrinsically. He was a man of service. And so I now, I just learned to help somebody. If I see them carrying a heavy bag, I've learned to smile in Trader Joe's and thank people. I've learned to care about my neighbors and the community and just um together with my daughters we've all said this that we've just learned to be more compassionate human beings and i think i didn't have that as much as steve did at all and uh that has become maybe the most important and significant uh part of how i've dealt with steve's death and the way i want to live my life Mm. wow you know this has been tremendous i've got a mental list of all the profound things i've heard from all three of you about this and um it's long and and so compelling and i can't thank you enough for sharing your stories here uh i think it's going to be very useful for people um so elaine ari and emmeline thank you so much thank Thanks you for so much Thank you. Thank you, Thank you yeah, so you've much. You've been for wonderful, me. Anthony. Oh, no, you guys, geez. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro Podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.